Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. Today's Bible passage is very famous. And in the Bible, there's two general stories of Samaritans. There's the good Samaritan, the honorable man who seen his enemy, the Jew, beaten on the, the side of the road, and he left uh, his donkey and he put him, uh, he put him on, uh, back on the track and cared for him. This man's selfless grace has inspired charities right through the ages. We have imaginatively named the Samaritans, Samaritan's Purse, Samaritan's Feet, the Good Samaritan Donkey Shelter. Believe it or not, that's just outside London if you ever want to go for a, a day trip. So that's the good Samaritan. But the second story I would call the bad Samaritan. This is the immoral five times married woman who asked difficult questions of Jesus beside the well. The first character was fictitious. Jesus told him as a, as a symbol of a story in a parable. The second one was very real. And she encountered Jesus beside Jacob's well. And her life was changed. And in fact, the village where she came from was changed. This is a very familiar story and episode. But I think there's something that really speaks to us today. Not only are we drawn to this woman who wanted more of life. She was thirsty for more. But we're also drawn to a savior who is the living water who refreshes us. This is about embodied, redemptive grace, but also what do we do whenever we're thirsty? What do we do when we want more in our lives? I think this is the COVID reality that we live in. God has stripped away so much of the comfort, so many of the, the things that we thought we knew, the stability in our life, and we're left seeking for more. We're not satisfied. Like this woman, we come to the well and our lives are not as they should be. We want more and more. So I just want to break the passage down this morning and look a little bit at the context. Why on earth was Jesus actually in Samaria? And then there's the problem that we're all thirsty, that this is a thirsty woman who wanted more. And the solution is simple. Jesus is the living waters. So how do we move from the problem to the solution? Well, the pathway was prophetic revelation. Jesus opened up and he showed the woman more about herself that reflected and illuminated about God. And the outcome, this thirsty woman, her life was changed and she became a wellspring for others around her. So let's start on some of the context. Now, if we, if we look at verse one, Jesus' fame, it's starting to spread. The Pharisees, as Daniel preached last week, they started to see that Jesus was baptizing and his disciples were growing, his followers were growing. And they might have thought, okay, maybe it's time to head to Jerusalem. Maybe it's time to cash in on some of this fame and credibility, but that's not how Jesus operated. Instead, he decided to go back to Galilee. This was not his time. So how do you go from Jerusalem back up to the north of Galilee? There's two routes. The shortest route is through the hillside of Samaria. Now for Jewish disciples, this is a non-option. You do not want to go through Samaria. 
These were a hated people. These were outcasts. And in fact, for many Jews, they didn't talk to Samaritans. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. So instead, Jews would sometimes go down and go right up the Jordan, cross over the Jordan and go to Galilee that way. But it says in verse 4, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And this shows this sort of divine inspiration. Jesus was led by a different plan. He, there was an appointment and there was a woman waiting by a well that he had to meet. I love this. You know, sometimes we say it as the encounter of the Samaritan woman with God. And no, it's a reversal. God encountered the Samaritan woman. In time, he knew her and he waited for her. Now, what was this historic problem between the Jews and the Samaritans? Like many of the conflicts, it was about identity, history, ethnicity, displacement, and power. The Samaritans were racially mixed. They, were they, they combined some religious components of Judaism and also from Assyria. In fact, the Jews joked about the Samaritans that they were impure, they were rebellious, and the Samaritans hated the Jews because they felt superior and arrogant. The Samaritans date back to Assyrian settlers in 1722 who came and assimilated while some of God's people had been led into captivity in Babylon, to Babylon, Jews remained and therefore they became mixed. And there was a separation of the north and the south. And in fact, the Samaritans built a separate temple in Mount Gezerium. They had their own book, the, the Pentateuch. It was only the first five books of the Bible that they accepted. They rejected the prophets. They rejected um, the Psalms. They believed their book was important. So for over 700 years, there's, there's problems between these two people. The Samaritans collaborated. In fact, the Greeks used Samaria as a base to infiltrate and to, uh, to control the Jews. And the Jews retaliated. In, in 128 BC, they destroyed the Samaritan temple. And the Samaritans, a few years later, they came to the temple in, in Jerusalem and they scattered bones. They tried to defile it. So these people really did not like each other. This was an ingrained feud. Think maybe Brazil and Argentina in the football. <laughs> Rangers, Celtic, Israelis, Palestinians, Megan, Kate. This was a deep and personal animosity. They wouldn't touch each other. They wouldn't go near each other. But what does Jesus do? Jesus leads his disciples into Samaria he sends them out to get food. They're going to stay overnight. This is totally against tradition. This is totally a reversal of what is normally held uh, as, as the social norms of the day. So we start this story. Jesus is sitting beside the well, Jacob's well. In Genesis 33, Jacob had bought this plot of land near Shechem. And in fact, the well still exists today. A few years ago, I was in Nablus, um, as you do, just visiting, and the well exists in a Greek Orthodox church. Like Jesus, I didn't bring my bucket, I'd forgotten it, but it's still very, very deep. It's seen as one of the deepest wells in that region. And the well, it represents life and water and social gatherings, but also marriage betrothals. We think of Abraham and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, 
Moses and his wife Sephora, they met around a well. And some see this as, as Jesus prophetically meeting this woman and bringing the Samaritans back in to the kingdom of God. So this is the stage. Now we come to the main actors. In verse 7 it says, A woman from Samaria came to, the wa- came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me something to drink. We have a thirsty woman. I think what's really incredible in this encounter is a reversal. Jesus begins it, and he asks the woman for something to drink, even though it is the woman who has a deeper spiritual need. And the woman's shocked. How on earth is Jesus speaking to her? In this culture, men do not even speak to their wives in public. I think my wife might be happy with that. But for many, it goes against against the grain. He shouldn't be talking to a woman. He shouldn't be talking to a Samaritan. He can't drink from her utensils, her buckets. It would defile him. And instead, Jesus says, give me something to drink. This is really interesting. Jesus doesn't start this relationship from a position of power. He reverses it, a position of weakness. He is the servant king who came to serve us. This is incarnational ministry, that first Jesus reveals his humanity before he reveals his divinity. Sometimes it's important that we need to show our weaknesses to be more transparent. Daniel's talked about telescripts. Really, that's just about meeting together and being honest. Life is difficult and hard. We don't have all the answers. Jesus serves first out of weakness. But why is this woman even there in the baking midday? Women should have been really at the well, either early in the morning or in the evening. So it seems this woman is an outcast. She's alone. She's not with other women. And perhaps it's because of her notorious past. She was the talk and scandal of Sikhar. She would make the Daily Mail gossip section every week. Imagine five husbands and a new partner who she's not married to. Most commentators immediately assume this is a promiscuous, immoral woman who's just moving from relationship to relationship. I, I, I think I would actually question this. Because what's really interesting, when we look at the culture, only men could divorce in that culture. This woman is not the one who is flitting from marriage to marriage. Men are continually divorcing her. Also, if she's an adulteress, she's more likely to be stoned than remarried. Why would men continually remarry an unfaithful woman? If she was a prostitute, she wouldn't have needed to be married in the first place. She wouldn't needed to be, she would have been independent like Rahab. Perhaps she was a multiple widow. Perhaps she was forced to marry her dead husband's brother. That, again, was common practice in those days. But also maybe she was divorced because she didn't have children. This is a real, this is what happened, and it was common. Those who couldn't have children, very often their husband would take uh, another wife. What's clear, with every marriage, her value, her self-esteem diminishes She wants to withdraw from society. She wants to withdraw from other women. She doesn't want to go to the well because she's scorned, embarrassed, shamed. In truth, we don't really fully know this woman, but what we do know is that she's desperate for something more than than what life is offering her. Counselor and, and minister Craig Lonsborough says, there's a deep dryness of the soul 
And all the recalcian contrivance of man to quench his own thirst will not bring a single drop of moisture to those parched places. For God and God alone holds the water that satiates our soul. C.S. Lewis puts it even more succinctly, and he says, we are always trying to fulfill that insatiable thirst for heaven with earthly things. Lewis is totally right. We have this spiritual thirst and hunger, but we try to cram it with different things. Maybe it's people, maybe it's possessions, maybe it's status. If we find the right person, if we have the right relationship, we meet our husband, our wife, they will complete us. They will fulfill us. If we have children, if we have, you know, with 700 friends on Facebook, but we feel incredibly lonely. If only we had more friends, that would, that would fill our needs. If only we had more possessions. We need a bigger house. We need a better car. We need new watches. We need new gadgets. We're continually being sold dissatisfaction. We need something more. We need status. We need to be admired. We need to be famous. We need to have followings. It's interesting. I talked to some kids and, and my kids, and what do they aspire to be these days in life? You know, I was speaking to a teacher recently, and he said his kids, they aspire to be influencers. I mean, influ influencers, they aspire to be digital salespeople, like social media boards. They aspire to play to be YouTube stars playing Roblox or Fortnite. They aspire to be sponsored for doing dances on TikTok. I mean, they want to be known. They want to be celebrated. This is what people are trying to fill their lives with. Maybe it's distraction. In fact, we have a spiritual hunger, but we don't even realize our lives are so busy, running after family, kids, job, everything. We don't realize we have a deep hunger and we are not being satisfied. So the problem is thirst, but the solution is Jesus living waters. So Jesus answered to this woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. For whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give becomes a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God has built an internal thirst in all of us for him. The water that he offers this Samaritan woman is not like any other water because it's the gift of God and it's available to all people. God's water cannot be contained in a well. It cannot be contained within stone boundaries or exclusive traditions. It is living, it's overflowing, it sweeps over cultural boundaries and norms. John Piper reminds us in this incident, Jesus breaks centuries of taboos. He was alone in Samaria. He sat on a wall. He spoke to a woman. He, he spoke to an adulteress. He asked for a drink. Jesus breaks cultural boundaries to reach people. And what did he break in this incident? He broke the boundaries of gender, where women were very often, they were treated so badly. Even they, they, their witness, they, they could not really speak so easily in public. Jesus elevates women. Jesus' early followers are women. This woman's life is transformed. Jesus continually elevates the position of women. 
He elevates and he moves the position of the Samaritans. They shouldn't have been despised. He embraces them. There is no culture, there's no religious background outside of God's grace and mercy. That's a challenge. You know, for us, we talk about inclusivity, tolerance, but do we respect everyone in that same way? Are there certain cultures, are there certain religions that we just really struggle with, that we can't reach beyond those boundaries? Jesus says there is no one beyond his love and his grace. This is radical revolutionary teaching of the gospel, that God looks beyond boundaries, that he doesn't see the outcast, he doesn't see the failure, he sees the woman's potential, he sees her ability, he sees what she can do in her life. So this water is available for everyone. It's the water that also really quenches our thirst. I wonder, as I say that, I'm just gonna take a drink. I wonder if you've really been thirsty. No matter what you drink, it just doesn't hit the spot. I remember being caught in a a sandstorm in Tunisia, as you do, many years ago. And if you've ever been in a sandstorm, like sand is just everywhere, it's in your mouth. You're trying to like, you have showers, it gets into orifices you you don't even know exist. (laughs) And I remember that, you know, it's worse than being in Bromley sand pit with 20 children attacking you. (laughs) AJ knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> the water just doesn't, I remember lying on the bed and just pouring liters of water, uh, liters of water into me and my belly was just extended. You could hear it just rumbling. I was like an inflatable sort of squidgy toy. And it just didn't meet my need. It didn't quench my thirst. Jesus says, look, I'm giving you living water that will, I am the source of that living water and I will meet your thirst. We look back at the Old Testament in Jeremiah 2, verse 13. Jesus says, or God says, I am the spring of living water. People turn to their own broken cisterns. They can't hold water. I am the source. A few chapters later in John, Jesus stands up and says, anyone who thirsts, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in him were to to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given. Our thirst is quenched in Jesus through our belief in him, through our obedience to his teachings, through the infilling of his Spirit. I think so often as believers, we can forget this. We're just daily running to the well with our empty buckets, drawing out water that doesn't really satisfy. And Jesus says, no, come to me. I have water that is going to refresh your life. I have water that is going to change your perspective on life. I have water that is going to open your eyes. You're going to see things in a different way. You're going to have energy. We love energy drinks these days. You just go into the supermarkets. You can't, people can't get enough. They need some sort of, I remember as a student drinking far too many Red Bulls one night. My eyes wouldn't close, you know, trying to get the final essays in. Jesus' water energizes us in a new way that that Monster or Red Bull uh, has, has no chance of doing. But as this woman is talking, she still doesn't really get it. She's interested in the water that God has to offer, but she's still seeing it in very physical and material ways. Where is this spring? Living water can also mean spring. I think she thought Jesus said, look, forget about the well, there's a spring. Let's go to the spring. And somehow God has to shift her perspective. And he does it in a really interesting way. 
And this is through a dramatic spiritual revelation. In verse 16, Jesus says to the woman, go and call your husband to come here. And the the woman answers, I have no husband. Jesus says, it's right you've no husband because you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. I love the woman's response. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. It's quite ironic. Oh, thank you. You've just called me out. You understand. You see me and you're prophetic. What happens? Jesus moves from her physical thirst to internal private thirst. This is a dramatic approach. This re- and this is what God sometimes does. He reveals, he takes us from what our, our physical needs are to who we are and what is our internal condition. He demonstrates the power of God. I'd call this, this is a spiritual stun grenade that is just launched into our life. And suddenly, boom, we sit up and pay attention. This woman's not just dealing with a thirsty Jew. She's dealing with a prophet who knows her life. I wonder what happens whenever God does that to us. And suddenly he reveals something and shows that he understands us, that he cares. Just recently in a telos group, again, Daniel, I like this. This is sort of the importance of telos. A friend brought a verse to me that I thought it was a bit strange. Basically, Paul's being shipwrecked and his ship is going down and there's this verse that says, but don't worry, no one will be lost. Now, I, had to book, I had to book a ferry back to Ireland in a few weeks' time and I was hoping this is not a sort of prophetic insight that it's going down. Well, we'll see in, in, in a few weeks. But, but what it was was a difficulty in work, a project in work that was sinking, that was being lost. But yet this redemptive message that, not a, that no one will die out of this, that God sometimes might collapse things in your life to bring you to a different place. God can strip away things that we don't want him to, but he brings us spiritually to a different place. This is what Jesus does. He sees the woman's life and this prophetic revelation opens it, opens it up. It's a demonstration that God understands and sees the small things. I love a book by Brennan Manning called Ruthless Trust. And in it he says, the mysterious love of God is fierce enough to penetrate those who think they cannot receive it. As they sink into the silence of infinite mercy, outsiders become aware of the presence. They hear a gentle voice whisper, I am here, do not be afraid. With the dissonance and contretemps of our troubled world, I live and I reign. God is there. He sees our lives. What's fascinating, the Samaritan woman, what does she immediately do? God says, I know your life. I know your sinfulness. I can see it's unfulfilled. Immediately she deflects into religion. Immediately she goes back and said, okay, you're a prophet. I've got a good question for you. The Samaritans believe the temple should be here in this mountain. The Jews believe the temple should be in Jerusalem. Who's right? Now, Jesus could have easily said, okay, stop that. Let's go back to the husband issue. Who cares about the temples? But he doesn't. Because the temple issue, this is a key spiritual truth that he's going to reveal to this woman. And he says, look, it doesn't matter. My kingdom is not based on territorial space. But in the future, right now, those that will worship will worship in spirit and truth. It's not contained in a well, his living water. It's going to overflow. It's going to go across territories. It doesn't matter whether you're a Samaritan or Jew. It doesn't matter if you're Palestinian or Israeli, Muslim or Christian. 
whatever your cultural background is, Jesus is speaking directly into your life and saying, I'm going to draw people from all nations, from all tribes, from all cultures, from all religious backgrounds. This is the combination of both the prophet and the priest. The prophet spoke words that unlocked this woman's heart. The priest showed her the true worship is in spirit and in truth. It's not contained in these walls. We sit in a church, we worship God. We worship God also outside of this space. We worship God in our daily lives. We worship God because God has sent his spirit that infills us. It's no longer contained in a temple. We are the body and we are the presence of the Holy Spirit, that God indwells us. This is the truth. The Samaritan woman is not just thirsty for sensual pleasure. She's thirsty to be known, to be understood, to be accepted and to be loved. And that's what she finds in Jesus. This is the outcome. The thirsty becomes the one who becomes the wellspring of life. Jesus incredibly explains to her. She says, look, I'm, we're looking for the Messiah. This is a real insight for the Samaritans. They're still looking for the Messiah. They aren't satisfied. And Jesus says, I am he. he in, in the whole of the New Testament, he is not clearer to any other person, to the Pharisees, to the Roman rulers, but to this Samaritan outcast woman. He says, I'm, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you're waiting for. I know you. I understand you. So the woman's knowledge goes from a thirsty Jew to a prophet, to the Messiah, to the savior of the world. And as her understanding of Jesus shifts, so does her position. She goes from an outcast, a social misfit, to someone who is engaging and conversing with God, to a radical evangelist. So immediately she, she leaves her jar, she returns to the village, and she brings people to Jesus. This woman changes the history of her village. She might have been rejected. She might have been disdained by those who knew her. But suddenly her life is changed. Suddenly her status is changed. She becomes a spring for those around her. I think that's so encouraging. In life, sometimes we hold on to our failures. Sometimes people have called us certain things. There's, there's actions that we have taken that continue to haunt us. God doesn't see us in that way. People might see us in that way. God sees our potential. God sees our ability. God sees our need. And he encourages us. This is the heart of the gospel, that God takes flawed, failing individuals, and he uses them to subvert traditional power structures, value systems, ethnic superiority. The gospel message is the most subversive in history. The grace and un you know, unwarranted forgiveness is given when we meet Jesus. We live in, in an increasingly puritanical age of intolerant tolerance, of moral posturing, of self-aggrandizement. The gospel strips that all away and it says, we all lead messy lives. We all have pain. We have unfulfilled dreams. There's certain things in your life that you want to be. You maybe want to be where you you know, where you think you should be, and you're not there. You're not happy. You're discontent. You can't watch enough TED Talks, lifestyle podcasts to become a better person. We need, the only thing that changes us is a spiritual encounter with God. To be known that God knows every aspect of your life, 
and he still accepts you. He still trusts in you and he wants to empower you. He wants to change you. He wants to refresh you. He wants this water to flow into your life. So the invitation of this woman by the well is still the same invitation today. 2,000 years later, Jesus stands by a well and he invites you to come. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Nothing else is going to satisfy you. Nothing is going to satisfy you in your life apart from the living waters that God has. I think today, I thought in the worship this morning, we were touching on that that's so dovetailed with this message that God wants to pour more and more out into your lives. So I'm just going to close in prayer and we're going to invite the worship band back back up. It's just a simple prayer. God knows where we are today. God knows our needs and he wants us to reach out and to receive more of him to allow him to cleanse our lives to allow him to flow and work in our lives so let's just pray and be open to see how god is going to move us how god is going to change us how god is going to use us lord jesus you're the living water that our soul needs may i meet you in the heat of the day in the trials of life in my shame and guilt, may I encounter your love, your gentleness and acceptance in these moments. May your love become the source of new life in you. Jesus, I trust you. Amen.